Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Sorry, we're starting a little late, but we wanted everybody to get, uh, to get settled so there weren't any distractions. My name is Dan Griswold. I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies uh, here at the Cato Institute. Our mission at the Trade Center is to educate uh, the public and policymakers on the benefits of free trade and the costs of protectionism. And as you can imagine, that is a full-time job uh, here in Washington. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the role of the Atlas Foundation in helping us uh, put together this exciting event today. Well, it's safe to say millions of words have been written in our day on the politics of the Middle East, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, on the war in Iraq, on the push for more democracy in the region. And these are, of course, very important issues. But I think it's been a, in comparison, not much attention has been given, certainly not enough, uh, to the economics of the Middle East, to the state of economic freedom uh, in that region. And this is a serious oversight. Economic freedom is critical to development, to raising living standards, to giving hope, uh, especially to young people joining the workforce uh, in reducing poverty. And my colleagues here at Cato, uh, Ian Vasquez and Marian Tupi, have done a lot of great work in this area through the Project on Global Economic Liberty. Freedom to trade is an important aspect of economic reform. Trade barriers are relatively high in the Middle East. And outside of oil, uh, people in that region uh, just are not producing a lot that the rest of the world uh, wants to buy, but we're going to hear uh, some exceptions today. The people of the Middle East will not achieve their full potential uh, without economic reform and trade liberalization. And trade and economic reform are about more than economic development. Expanding trade helps to expand an economically independent and politically tuned in middle class that typically forms the backbone of more democratic forms of government. Trade opens societies to the tools of communication, cell phones, internet access, satellite TV, and more access to foreign exchange, foreign travel, and foreign ideas. Our research at Cato shows that nations open to trade are more likely to be democracies that respect human rights than nations that are closed to the global economy. Growing commercial ties among nations also promote more peace and understanding. Economic ties raise the cost of war. Uh, trade and globalization allow nations to acquire resources and food without conquest, but through peaceful trade. And to the degree that trade promotes democracy, democracies don't tend to fight wars with each other, and thus leaving the world a more peaceful place. Now, based on those solid assumptions, the Bush administration has tried to encourage more economic freedom in the Middle East by promoting what they call the Middle Eastern Free Trade Area, MEFTA. Uh, one pillar of that strategy has been to negotiate and sign free trade agreements between the United States and Middle Eastern countries that are reform leaders in that region. To date, the United States has signed and Congress has enacted free trade agreements with four Mideast countries. Israel, Jordan, Morocco, and as of last month, Bahrain. And tomorrow, the administration will sign an agreement with another reform leader, the Sultanate 
of Oman. And we are pleased to have two important representatives from Oman today, one from the government, Commerce and Industry Minister Makbul Ali Sultan, who will be signing the agreement tomorrow on behalf of his government, and Salam Ismaili, who heads a private sector, market-oriented think tank uh, in Oman. And providing an overview will be Fred McMahon of the Fraser Institute, who along with Mr. Ismaili co-authored a report, Economic Freedom of the Arab World, which is available here today. Last year, Americans and Omanis exchanged close to $1 billion in goods in two-way trade. America ranks as Oman's number four supplier of imports to Oman with industrial machinery, cars, and other transportation equipment, accounting for most of our exports to Oman. And just as importantly for the free trade agreement, Oman's government has been moving decisively in the direction of economic reform and has a long history, as a matter of fact, of being a trading nation open to the global economy for centuries. Um, and Oman is now one of the freest economies in the Middle East, according to the Economic Freedom of the World report uh, published by the Fraser Institute in cooperation with Cato and a number of other free market think tanks around the world. Oman has been a member of the WTO uh, since 2000. Its government does not support any boycott of Israel or U.S. companies that do business in Israel. As a member of the WTO, Oman extends full trading rights and privileges to all other WTO members. And by the way, the Cato Institute has been uh, doing its part to promote economic liberty in the Middle East. Uh, recently, we launched an Arabic language website uh, that is available, of course, worldwide. Uh, you can access it by going to the uh, English language title lampofliberty.org. Uh, it has an Arabic title, but I won't uh, embarrass myself by trying to pronounce it. Uh, maybe one of our guests uh, can do that. Uh, but I'm told it means the same thing in Arabic. Our first speaker today is a key economic official from Oman and one of the architects of its economic liberalization. Makbul, Minister Makbul Ali Sultan is Oman's Minister of Commerce and Industry, a position he has held since 1991. Before his current position, he was an executive in uh, a family enterprise, and he was elected president of the Oman uh, Chamber of Commerce, where he served for several years. He holds a degree in civil engineering from City University in London. Please join me in welcoming Minister Makbul Ali Sultan. Thank you, Dan. Good morning, or good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure to address this forum on free trade between the Sultanate of Oman and the United States of America. I would like f first to thank the Atlas Economic Research Foundation and Cato Institute for organizing and hosting this event. Two months ago, nearly two months ago, on November 20th, 2005, the International Research Foundation of the Sultanate of Oman, in coordination with Fraser Institute of Canada, had hosted the World Economic Freedom Annual Network Meeting in Oman and launched the first Arab World Economic Freedom Awards. The event was well received not only in the Arab world but also internationally. 
I wish to convey our appreciations to economic think tanks such as the Fraser Institute, Atlas Economic Research Foundation, and Cato Institute, and many others who participated in the creation of awareness of economic freedom in the Arab world. We were pleased to see how these economic think tanks evaluated the Sultanate of Oman in its economic performance. Oman being awarded the grand overall trophy for the freest economic nations in the Arab world, with Lebanon giving us the confidence needed in our pursuit for perfection. It is testimony to these achievements and perception of the world community that the annual report of the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of the World 2005, which surveyed 127 countries and assessed them on the basis of 38 variables in the index, placed Oman as number 17 in terms of economic freedom, ahead of many developed countries such as Germany, Japan, Norway, South Korea, Italy, and France. Also, Transparency International, an international non-government organization which prepares a corruption perception index and rates the countries accordingly has for, year, for the year 2005 placed Oman at number 26 out of the 133 countries surveyed, the highest rating among the Arab countries and quite close to countries such as Japan, France, Spain, and Portugal. The Sultanate's liberal economic policy has helped in achieving a robust economic growth. During the year 2004, we achieved an economic growth of 14.4% in GDP, and preliminary estimates for the year 2005 showed more than 19% growth in the GDP at current prices over the year 2004. In our region, Oman, as a member of the Arab Gulf Cooperation Council, has established a custom union with effect from 1st January 2003. There was a free trade agreement from the 1980s, and then this now transformed to the second stage, which was the custom union. The extension of the market would help the manufacturing companies to increase their sales in the GCC countries, thus moving towards achieving the economy of scale. Trade and investment liberalization required special attention to make the Gulf industry more competitive by raising productivity, improving quality, and efficiency. The GCC Customs Union has now opened the door for negotiating and concluding a free trade agreement between the GCC and European Union, India, China, and Latin America. Oman has acceded to the facilitation and development of trade between the Arab countries, which is considered to be the backbone of the Arab economic integration. The Arab states have established the Greater Arab Free Trade Area with the hope that it may develop into an Arab common market in the future. Starting from 2005, 17 Arab countries have implemented the Free Trade Agreement. The Sultanate of Oman supports the free trade agreement, the Arab free trade area, and is committed towards fulfilling its obligations. 
The custom duties within the countries that are party to the agreement are already down to zero. Now, this is very important. The Arab Free Trade Agreement and the GCC Custom Union and the Free Trade Area Free Trade Agreement between Oman and U.S., which means that any U.S. company investing and having a manufacturer base in Oman could easily export to any Arab country, any GCC country, without any custom duties. And that is the benefit to the American companies. With the Sultanist Initiative, an Indian Ocean Rim Association for Regional Cooperation was created. It is also a response to the current international trend calling for the formation of larger and effective regional groupings. The IORARC, as it is known, has enormous natural and human resources as well as widespread markets. The association countries cover a vast geographical area from Australia in the east to South Afri Africa in the west, and countries of the South and Southeast Asian region, well known for their flourishing and expanding markets. <coughs> Oman's membership in the IORARC is an important step towards the utilization of its strategic geographical location, which provides an ideal link between the South and Southeast Asian and the East African market. Oman's accession to the WTO as a full member is considered to be an important step in its endeavor for integrating with the global economy. The accession itself was achieved through fast-track negotiations, which was completed in a period of less than three years from the beginning of the negotiations to becoming a member. As for the FTA with the United States of America, it took only two rounds of negotiations, seven months before we formally announced the conclusion of the negotiations. The importance of the recently concluded Oman-U.S. Free Trade Agreement and its potential impact on the economy cannot be overstated. The FTA is aimed at liberalizing trade in goods and services, facilitating free market competition, stimulating the inward flow, flow, inward flow of investment, and making Oman a transit gateway for American products to go to other countries in the region. I mentioned the Arab countries and GCC, but you have got the Indian subcontinent, you've got the East African countries, you have got Yemen. Expansion in key manufacturing services sector is anticipated, encouraging the exchange of expertise and creating employment opportunities for Oman. FTA will further open the already liberal market of Oman to goods, services, and investments from the United States thus benefiting the U.S. economy. Furthermore, the agreement would also promote the establishment of knowledge-based industries in Oman. Once the agreement comes into force, 100% of bilateral trade in consumer and industrial products will become duty-free, with a first out of remaining tariff in a 10-years period. The agreement will also cover agricultural products with broad array of such goods becoming duty-free upon ratification. In addition to, implement, to eliminating of these tariff, tariff barriers, the agreement will also provide new opportunities in areas such as banking, 
insurance, telecommunication, express delivery services, and construction. The agreement further provides a broad and stable platform for economic growth. For example, the agreement requires a secure, predictable legal framework for all forms of investment to occur and calls for streamlined custom procedures to facilitate trade. Besides putting investors' mind at ease, the agreement also commits each government to establish high levels of environmental protection and ensure its labor standards are consistent with international recognized labor rights, that's the ILO. We have already seen an increase in U.S. corporate interest in Oman in the last few years. AES and the National Power Company, which both contain significant U.S. investment, operate first-rate power and water desalination plants in north and south of the country. Dow Chemical has teamed up with the Man Oil Company to form a petrochemical industries corporation, a petrochemical complex that will produce ethylene and polyethylene from the ethylene cracker. Bechtel Corporation has signed a contract with Sahar Aluminium Company to construct an U.S. $2.2 billion aluminium smelter, which is in partnership with Alcan of Canada. A number of leading USA construction, oil and gas companies, insurance companies, finance firms are involved in exciting projects, tourism projects. To give you some examples of the companies, Occidental have got two very big concessions. AIG has got Alico, which is the life insurance and a general insurance branch. Amex have now got a credit card branch, 100% owned by Amex. Microsoft has got a company there, a branch there. And, and you have got a number of other companies which already are there as a full branch and 100% companies even before FTA is signed and implemented. This agreement, ladies and gentlemen, does signal a beginning of new relationship but a continuation of already existing old partnership between our countries. The Sultanate was the first Arab country to establish diplomatic contact with the United States, doing so in the first half of the 19th century. Diplomatic relations between the two countries began 166 years ago during Andrew Jackson's presidency, but informal ties were established more than 200 years ago when a U.S. ship sailed into Muscat Harbor in 1790. Thirty-eight years later, an American merchant named Edmund Robert opened talks with His Majesty Sultan Saeed in Zanzibar, then the western capital of the Omani Empire. This led to the signing of the Treaty of Amity, Economic Relations and Consular Rights, one of the first agreement of its kind with an Arab state and the United States of, and, and Oman in the year 1833. At this time, that was the free trade agreement. It was the f best free trade agreement of its kind in 1835. And in order to maintain a close personal and commercial relationship with the United States in the year 1840, the then ruler of Oman, His Majesty Sultan Said's Said bin Sultan sent his ship, Sultana, and his special envoy, 
Ahmed bin Naaman to the USA, thus paving the way for one of the first Arab countries or the first Arab countries to establish diplomatic relations with the United States. And so, as some of you may be aware, during 2005, last year, Smithsonian Folklife Festival, the largest annual cultural event in Washington, over 100 musician, dancers, and craftspeople participated from Oman, representing cultural traditions from the desert, oasis, and sea. And I understand that this was the first time that an Arab country has been featured as a full standalone exhibition in the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. That was a wonderful opportunity for Americans to be exposed to the rich history, culture, and beauty of the Sultanate. Ladies and gentlemen, like any relationship, the one between the Sultanate of Oman and the United States of America can be multifaceted. Our task is to use our historic relationship for stimulating business-to-business -business discussions, partnerships, and alliances with a view to refreshing, re-energizing, and reorienting the relationship between two of the world's oldest trading partners for our mutual benefits. We believe that a strong and transparent system for international trade shall achieve increases in the global trade, investment, employment, and income, and the GDP for the country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. I thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Minister. Our next speaker is Fred McMahon, Director of the Center for Trade and Globalization Studies at the Fraser Institute. He manages the Economic Freedom of the World Project and examines global issues such as development, trade, governance, economic structure. The Center coordinates the Economic Freedom Network, of which Cato belongs, an international alliance of independent think tanks in nearly 70 nations. Uh, major studies uh, he has recently authored or co-authored include Economic Freedom of North America and Economic Freedom of the Arab World that I mentioned. He has an MA in Economics from McGill University, Montreal. Please join me in welcoming Fred McMahon. Thank you, Dan. Let me uh, begin by saying that considering who the hosts are today and who my fellow speakers are, this is a tremendous uh, pleasure and honor for me. I believe Cato is the creme de la creme of uh, think tanks in the United States, and it really is a think tank that produces world-class research. The Atlas Foundation plays an important role across the world in supporting new free market think tanks developing in the poorer countries, and thus has played an important role in reducing poverty across the world. Two of the three speakers that Dan introduced today are true visionaries working hard uh, to create a better world. I don't count myself as one of them. I've known and deeply respect uh, Makbal Ali Sultan and my friend Solomon Al Ishmaleh, and I would also like to recognize the Omani ambassador uh, to the United States, Hunana Al Magari. All three have played an important role in establishing the International Research Foundation 
uh, of Oman. Even though these senior government officials realize that a true free market think tank has the task of actually criticizing uh, high officials and government, nor will the International Research Foundation of Oman be a government-run think tank. We're already working hard to put private sector funding uh, in place for it so it may be independent of government. For a think tank that's just a few months old, it has uh, three astonishing and great successes already which have been referred to. Co-publishing with us the Economic Freedom Index uh, of the Arab World, co-hosting the eco Economic Freedom uh, Network of the World uh, Meeting in Muscat, Oman, which actually set a new standard uh, for such meetings, and organizing on its own a fantastic uh, economic freedom of the Arab World's award ceremony that attracted uh, delegates from virtually all uh, Arab nations. The International Research Foundation is dedicated to promoting economic freedom. Why is economic freedom important? Well, many years back, Milton Friedman predicted that nations with economic freedom would produce better lives for their citizens. Twenty years ago, then Fraser Institute Executive Director Michael Walker challenged Milton Friedman to prove this assertion. Thus began the 20 year, now 20-year-old 20 Economic Freedom of the World project. The first 10 years were devoted to a research effort, defining what economic freedom was. Uh, it was led by Milton Friedman, Mike Walker, involved 60 of the world's top scholars, including several Nobel laureates. Empirical research in the world's top peer-reviewed journals proved Milton Friedman's assertion in fact, in ways that uh, he probably didn't originally uh, anticipate. First off, it is absolutely true that economically free nations produce better lives for their citizens. If you take the top fifth economically freest nations and compare them to the bottom fifth, the standard of living is ten times as high in the economically most economically free nations as the least free nations. And that really doesn't uh, address the full gap because we don't have uh, the data to put in some of the world's least free nations like Cuba or North Korea who create ever more desperate lives for their citizens. Investment in economically free nations is 20 times higher on a per capita basis than in the least free nations. Uh, employment, unemployment in the least free nations is two and a half times uh, that of unemployment in the most free nations. Now these are snapshots uh, in time, but they are all backed by powerful empirical research using the most sophisticated uh, methods in journals like the American Economic Review and the European Journal of Political, of Political Economy. Nor is the wealth of economically free nations some historical uh, accident. Thirty year, oh, sorry, 40 years ago, Taiwan and South Korea were as poor or even poorer than their neighbors. They were the first to move to begin to free up their economy and look at a uh, trade-driven economic growth. Now they virtually have first world standards of living while many of their neighbors remain poor and developing. Fortunately, their neighbors have taken some lessons from these countries and are themselves trying to establish uh, free markets. 
Economic freedom, as it also turns out, and Dan alluded to this, is absolutely crucial for the development of democracy. If you don't have economic freedom and government controls your ability to make a living, to feed and clothe your family, to get a promotion, where you're going to live, you remain dependent on government and government officials. It does not allow true democracy and the uh, institutions of democracy to develop. But when you liberate people from the freedom uh, from government dependence, other institutions develop. People feel no longer constrained uh, by economics about speaking out. Now, it is true that it is that sometimes democracies are imposed on non-economically free nations, but these tend to be unstable. Economic freedom Free market economics is a vital anchor to stable democratic growth. I often have the uh, great pleasure of talking to anti-globalist crowds at universities. And uh, I, of course, remind them uh, that uh, markets and free markets, according to them, are fundamentally anti-democratic. And everybody nods. They, of course, all know how anti-democratic free markets are. And then I ask them, if anyone in the room can name a single stable democracy that does not have free markets, and then they all begin to look puzzled. And the reason for this, there are many reasons for this, and they're quite complicated. Just let me give you a simple one. Non-economically free nations tend to have an economy that is a zero-sum game. And you have groups, uh, ethnic groups, factions, special interest groups, all competing often violently for a slice of this fixed pie, compete, which is doled out by government. A recipe for tension and instability and typically violence. In an economically free nation, it's no longer a zero-sum game. Free markets produce a great deal of growth. And suddenly, instead of, in a zero-sum game, if you do well, it's my loss. Your gain is my loss. In a free market economy, your gain tends to be my gain, too. A wealthier consumer or a wealthier supplier is to my benefit. And even where there is competition in something like a zero-sum game, and say a fixed or declining market, the secret is not to lobby government or send people out onto the streets demanding your fair share. The secret is to produce goods and services better than your competitors. In other words, the incentives turn uh, from trying uh, to use political power and force to gain rewards to actually trying to produce better goods and services for people. As Dan also mentioned, as it turns out, uh, economic freedom and free markets reduce conflict both internally uh, and externally. This is in large part, according to recent research, to this change in production that free markets create. You no longer gain wealth by stealing your neighbor's natural resources. Wealth is produced by the functioning of a free market and the decisions, the free decisions of millions of individuals. A conqueror can steal resource wealth, but a conqueror cannot uh, coordinate uh, a free market to their benefit because that means cutting off the freedom which actually produces uh, the wealth. Now, 
I want to mention uh, now Oman over time will face challenges. It has a growing population and for a Gulf state its oil wealth uh, it, uh, for a Gulf state it has relatively little oil wealth. But the Minister of Commerce and the government of Oman have made uh, a courageous uh, and far-sighted project. They have asked the International Research Foundation, working with the Fraser Institute, to develop a set of policies to turn Oman, and I quote, into the economic freedom area of the world. A project which will clearly, from all the empirical evidence and research, create in Oman one of the world's most dynamic uh, economies. In some ways, I think of Oman a little bit like Ireland. Both have about the same population. Both sit on rich international trade routes. When Ireland reformed its policies to create economic freedom, it was just below the top 20. Unemployment was close to 20 percent. People, young people were leaving Ireland for the world now. And, Ir and Canada's per capita GDP at that point was two and a half times that of Ireland. Today, Ireland has moved to the top ten. Instead of a shortage of jobs, there is a shortage of workers. Now, believe it or not, the poor man of Northern Europe is richer on a per capita basis than Canada. This is the kind of dynamic that I believe that far-sighted people like Makbul Ali Sultan, Salam al Ismailay, Hunana al-Magari and many others in Oman are promoting for the good of their people. I could conclude by saying that I believe Oman is a good friend uh, now and in the future of the United States, but I think that uh, would be understating the story. I think Oman is a good friend to all of us who hope for a more prosperous, stable and peaceful world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fred, for uh, those words and for all the good work you and your colleagues do at Fraser. Our final speaker is Salem Ben Nasser al-Ishmaili. In 1996, he helped establish the Omani Center for Investment, Promotion, and Export Development, where he currently serves as executive president. He was previously chief executive officer, officer of the Public Establishment for Industrial Estates. And drawing on this extensive background in the private commercial sector. Last year he founded the International Research Foundation that Fred mentioned, a liberal, market liberal think tank in Oman, where he also co-authored with Fred McMahon the report on economic freedom in the Arab world. He was educated in the United States and Great Britain and holds degrees in telecommunications, liberal arts, industrial engineering, and business administration. Please join me in welcoming Salam al-Ishmaili. Good morning. I don't know if I should say morning or afternoon or evening. My biological cloak is a bit messed up since I came here. Uh, I've been known to putting people to sleep, but I think uh, today I will go to sleep before you do. <laughs> and to make my, the matter worse, 
I received a phone call very early in the morning, about two o'clock in the morning, from my wife, complaining that I haven't been calling her since I, I left Oman for America two days ago. And she insisted that when I go back, I have to take her to some place very expensive. <laughs> At two o'clock in the morning, you don't want to negotiate. <laughs> and I agree. But she didn't settle for that. She wanted me to mention the place that I'm going to take her. The only thing I could think of was a gas station. <laughs> when I told her that I was going to take her out to a gas station, she hung up on me. Well, I'm going to confuse you a little bit by talking about the Arab world, which you think you know. And I'm going to put a map there of all the countries of the Arab world. Actually, 75% of the Arab world is African in terms of geographical location. And almost 80% of the population of the Arab world are actually Africans. Arabs are rich. It's not true. 25% of the Arabs live on less than $2 a day. There's a huge problem of unemployment. In fact, in the next 20 years, we have to create 80 million jobs, which has never been done before. The economy grows by less than 0.5% annually, which means we need more than 100 years to increase our wealth compared to China that grows by 8 to 9%, where within 10 years they can double their income. To put things in perspective, the whole Arab world economy is less than that of Spain. And if you compare Shanghai, for example, as a city, it produces half of, the pop uh, of what the, the Arab world produces. And I was amazed. I just wanted to know what went wrong. So I looked into the figures and whatever Fred and their people in, in Canada were promoting. And uh, what is the amazing uh, thing about it is that all these countries, before the so-called independence, they were rich. In fact, countries like Egypt was richer than South Korea or Hong Kong. And I was wondering why. I've been working in the civil service for more than 22 years. I'm a lot older than I look. And uh, I just couldn't find the solution. People were telling us education is everything. Invest in education and education and you get your people rich. But as uh, Fred said, Ireland started in the 60s in education. And once you're educated in Ireland, where do you go to find a job? Continental Europe. Cuba has a lot of educated people, but otherwise unemployed. So education by itself, while it's important, does not create wealth. And then we were told, well, if you have oil, that's the beginning. Natural resources, use them. And then you look into places like Libya that has almost the same population as Oman and far more oil than we do and have a lot of poor people. Libya is not the only country. If you look into Sub-Sahara, Botswana, Angola, Tanzania, etc., they're all very rich countries with very poor people. Then I stumble into what they call economic freedom. And I'm going to share with you some of these things that... Uh, uh, we are trying to do as an International Research Foundation. 
Our vision is the creation of wealth through promotion of economic freedom. And how do we intend to do that? Encourage governments to eliminate or reduce expenditures, taxes, and enterprises. It used to be efficient that every time that the government wants to do something, they create a general organization for something or an independent authority. Promote legal structure that provides proper rules of law and protects security and uh, of those of the property. Ensure citizens have access to sound money and ensure citizens have freedom to exchange with foreigners and promote predictable and accessible regulations of credit, labor, and business. It's one thing to say that I have rules and regulations, but if you go to those government departments, can you predict, can you access to those rules and regulations? Now, I truly believe that if you want to inspire people, catch them when they're doing something right. So we have something here, at least we don't agree with Fraser Institute by criticizing governments. On the contrary, we praise those who are doing well. And this is why we started with the Economic Freedom Index. The criteria is we're looking into the size of the government, the legal structure, and the security of property, access to sound money, and freedom to trade internationally, regulation on credit, labor, and business. If we come to the first one, the general government consumption as a percentage of total consumption, transfers and subsidies as a percentage of GDP, government enterprises and investment as a percentage of total investment, and top marginal taxes. Now, I'm going to show you what happened when we did our first one. The one on the left there, it's the rank. That means if you are number one, you are on the top. And the one on the right side is the rate. In this category, Lebanon came up first for year 2005. Uh, we were looking into at least 16 Arab countries, which we had data for. At the end, there was Algeria. Oman was in the middle. What we need to do is to speed up privatization, corporatization, relax regulations, enhance decision-making. It's very important because decision is the spark that ignites the engine of, 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 of all the things to do. To, um, Clarity to, between the role where the government starts and where the private sector uh, takes over and improve corporate governance. The second criteria is the property. Military interference, integrity of the legal system, measure the case of reg uh, registration of the property, and enforcing contract payment disputes. In this area, this category, Tunisia came number one, Oman was uh, number four, but you can see the difference is 0 0.1 uh, between the first one and the fourth. The way forward is the separation of jurisdiction, legislation, and execution. Until today, many of our countries have all those threes clubbed in one. Promotion of an awareness of laws, rights and wrongs, quality of judges, the time limitation and enforcement of judgment, higher level of participation when drafting loads. It's one thing to say that we've brought an international consultant to look into this. We need local know-how. We need local input. The people, the practitioners of the law, they have to have a say there in terms of when we come to drafting these laws. 
Again, sound money is the average annual growth of money supply, the standard inflation, and then the recent inflation rate, freedom to own foreign currencies locally and abroad. In this area, we had Oman and Qatar um, being on, on top, while Morocco and Algeria somewhere then at the end. Here, we need to introduce more venture capital, control inflation, and reduce regulation and increase transparency. The last, uh, the tax on international trade, which is uh, the freedom to, uh, to trade internationally, uh, mean tariff rate, standard deviation, differences between official exchange and the black market or a parallel market exchange, restriction to engage in capital market. In this area, Qatar was number one, Oman was number four, while Libya was at the end. Again, to review the tariff and taxes, improve governance and efficiency, reduce restrictions on capital market, review the official exchange rate mechanism. The business, again, credit uh, market regulation, ownership of banks, competition, interest rates, control, and getting credit, labor market uh, regulations, employment index, hiring costs, firing costs, use of conscript uh, to obtain military personnel, business regulation, ease of starting a business, minimum capital required, and when you have to go out is an exit route. Here, Kuwait and Oman were on top. Egypt and Algeria were at the end. Again, adopt international accepted labor laws, improve in transparency, create support schemes for entrepreneur uh, development, provide training to improve efficiency and productivity. The overall rate, rating, uh, Oman and uh, Lebanon uh, finished first. Algeria, Syria were somewhere in the middle there. And uh, if you don't remember any of this, I would like to leave you with one statement which was said long time ago. The governments that govern the best are the governments that govern the least. Economic freedom does not have to be difficult. We like to make fun as well while we're doing this. Um, I would like to show you, first of all, we'd like to thank um, uh, Atlas Economic uh, Research Foundation and Cato Institute for hosting us here, the Center for International Private Enterprises for helping us in putting this program together, John Tappleton uh, Foundation as well. I would like to leave you with one slide um, which is of the award ceremony that we had. Uh, please enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and welcome to tonight's award ceremony. 
For the first time in the Sultanate of Oman, the International Research Foundation, in association with the Fraser Institute, is proud to present to you tonight the Arab Economic Freedom Awards. The event marks the launch of an annual series of Economic Freedom Awards ceremonies. I think of economic freedom as the right to work, the right to keep what you earn from your work, the right to own and sell property, the right to have a court system which will help you protect your property from people who want to take it from you, the right to be free from inflation taxation by governments, the freedom to trade goods, currency, and financial instruments with foreigners, and the right to be free from unreasonable regu regulation by bureaucrats and uh, other government officials. The winner of the Lean Government Awards for the year 2005 is Lebanon. The winner are Lebanon, Oman, and Qatar. Good evening. It's given me a great pleasure to announce the Free Trade Award. And the winner is Qatar. With my great pleasure, I'm going to now to announce with the winner of the Easy of the Business Award for the year 2005 is State of Kuwait. And the winner of the Rule of Law Award for the year 2005 is Tunisia. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Bank Muscat, it gives me a great pleasure to announce the overall Arab Economic Freedom and the award 
this year, 2005, goes to both Lebanon and Sultanate of Oman. Thank you for your patience, and I hope you can help us spread the word in the Arab world. We'd like to put more of these shows all over the Arab world throughout you know, the period over the next 20 years. Thank you very much. Well, you can say you saw it here, the Academy Awards, the Academy Awards of Arab Economic Freedom. Uh, now is the point where we would invite questions from the audience. Just a, a few simple ground rules. If you could raise your hand, wait for me to call on you, and then wait for the microphone to come around. Please identify yourself and your affiliation. Hold the, uh, if you could, the statements to a minimum and get right to the question. And if you need to direct it to a particular member of the panel, please do so. Yes, right in the back row there. You could wait for the microphone. Not that I really need it. My name is Cheryl Poe with Inside U.S. Trade. My question is to the Minister Sultan. Um, you, um, I wanted to know if on the labor standards in the FTA, is Oman willing to go as far as Bahrain did where it would uh, submitted a side, side letter outlining the specific obligations that they were going to undertake and the specific changes to their legislation? And secondly, are you willing to go as far as Bahrain and having those enforceable in the dispute settlement mechanism of the FTA? And finally, if not, why not? Thank you. I hope this works. Or do you want me to come? No, no? go ahead right there. Well, there's no such thing as labor standards in the free trade agreement. We have finalized the free trade agreement, and it is to be signed tomorrow. The labor standards are in ILO, which is the International Labor Organization. Uh, what happened with Bahrain, that the Congress asked them to abide by all ILO standards and change their laws accordingly. We in Oman already abide by the ILO standards. We have got the new law, which came out in 2003, and we have explained this to uh, the people in, in the Congress and in USTR. Thank you. So if you've already explained it, why not go ahead and put it in writing? We have, we have. The writing has gone or is gone today. I don't know. Uh, yes, it has already gone today, this morning. you think a side letter was issued this morning? It's not a side letter. There were questions about ILO and labor standards, and all the answers were given. Yes, right, uh, right behind her there. Uh, my name is Kami Bert. I work for Premier Mortgage Solutions, and my question is about buying property in uh, your states. 
if you come to the states, you can pay 20% down payment and you would be able to buy any property here. What about Shirkanti? If I come there and pay 10 or 20%, would I be able to buy some property there? Thanks. Unfortunately, no, you cannot. So what kind of but, economic freedom uh, but, you have? Uh, you know, uh, buying property, the government doesn't sell our properties. It's the private sector. In Oman, there's a lot, but there are certain areas in which foreigners can buy land. Sometimes you can pay only 5% and buy a land, or you can pay 20%. It's between the private sector. The government doesn't interfere in these things. Okay. Yes, down here. Richard Selden, uh, private trade lawyer. Uh, Minister Sultan, I wanted to ask you about the agricultural provisions. Could you describe those in a little bit more detail and indicate how much agriculture is coming from Oman to the United States as part of the answer? I wish we had enough water to grow more and export to the United States <laughs> of America. Uh, unfortunately, we have got problems with agriculture. We do not grow and we do not export a lot. Our exports are probably little dates and some bananas which go mainly to uh, to Dubai and to some other Gulf countries. I don't think we do export anything agricultural products to United States or we ever will. But we will import a lot of agricultural products from America, yes. Yeah, I have I have a few trade figures here and the the minister is exactly right. It's uh, you know counted in the tens of thousands of dollars a few uh, products from Oman, but mostly it's uh, U.S. exports to Oman and uh, tobacco among them, uh, miscellaneous edible products, vegetables and fruits, cereals, that sort of thing. And I'm sure those will increase as they usually do under the terms of the free trade agreement. Yes, way in back there. Uh, my name is Fadi Haddadin. I'm from Jordan. Uh, my question is that uh, three years ago, I read uh, in the newspapers that there's a plan among uh, Gulf Council countries to have a single currency. Uh, if such a plan becomes realistic, do you think that would promote Omani exports and other Gulf countries' exports? And would that also have a positive effects on the economic freedom ratings for Gulf countries. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Well, monetary union, the first stage of the monetary union is to link all the currencies to a certain uh, currency. And all Gulf currencies are linked to U.S. dollar. So that's the first stage, and that's complete. The second stage, which is to have one currency, is a very difficult stage. It will take some time. We uh, think it will be in 2010 or between 2010 and 2015 because you have to have the same monetary and fiscal policies. And this is not very easy. You have to have one central bank, as it is in Europe, as far as the euro is concerned. But the first stage of getting all linked to the U.S. dollar has already done. Thank you. Yes, down in the front row here. OJ Aberdeen, OA Advisors. My question is to Mr. Ismaili. Uh, I enjoyed your presentation, and you made a reference to the concept of venture capital. 
In the Middle East, as you may know, there are very few venture capitalists. The Arab world has not produced a Bill Gates. They have not produced a John D. Rockefeller. They have produced great traders. They have produced people who have built hotels and so on and so forth. How could you promote a, a culture of venture capital? How do you get people to invest in ideas and people? Right now, you find many institutions in the region that hardly invest in venture capital in their own countries, yet they do deploy capital and venture capital investments outside their world. If you, if you venture capital is a business of taking risk, and if you live in the Middle East, you are in that business. <laughs> I think there is a, a, a big potential right now because there is a lot of surplus of funds in the area. Uh, recently, we were looking into setting up a bank specifically for that purpose. Um, they call it investment company, but actually it's just taking ideas and you know ownership of their ideas and trying to, to implement. Because there is a surplus, we started with $100 million. Within seven months, it was oversubscribed by $500 million. So there is opportunity, especially now with the prices of oil going up, uh, there is extra sort of surplus funds that people are willing to take uh, risk on it. And if we get, get it right, if we create few success stories, I think the others will follow. But we have to structure the products in, uh, in, in a way that is acceptable locally. And one of them is Islamic products. I think it will generate interest. I know uh, it's very infant, and, and you are right. This is, this is why we are trying to promote it, because it doesn't exist. Uh, but the hope that we have is that we have surplus fund right now. We have people who are willing to take that risk, and we have managed to create uh, such an institution, and it has been successful. Dan, could I quickly just yes, add please, something please. to that? Solemn's right, of course, about the unique problems in the Middle East. Um, I just want to relate something from North America. Russ Sobel of the University of Virginia took a look at uh, the North American Economic Freedom Index and tried to determine whether economic freedom or government programs to support venture capital uh, uh, were good predictors of the size of venture capital. And he found no relationship between government programs and a very high relationship particularly over time, between levels of economic freedom and the willingness of venture capitalists to go out and make investments. Yes. Um, this question to uh, Minister Sultan. Um, Sunil Chako from New Info Solutions. Um, the question I had is, uh, first, congratulations for the FTA with the United States. Do you foresee the proportion of trade uh, with America going up relative to that with Europe? And if so, do you anticipate European countries coming to you to want to sign uh, free trade agreements? And could you comment on bilateral agreements as opposed to regional and multilateral agreements? Thank you. Right. I'll start with Europe. As far as Europe is concerned, we are in the final stage of negotiations with the European Union, but that is not a bilateral. It is GCC with the European Union. And as I said in my speech, GCC is also negotiating with different countries and groups like Turkey, like India, Pakistan, and, and others, and China. So EU GCC will be there, and I'm hopeful that within the three, next three, four months, by June certainly, we'll finish 
the EU GCC. Now, your next question is what changes or will there be any big development in, in trade between Oman and, and USA? I hope it will. I mean, certainly FTA is not a magical solution. The governments will do its work by signing the FTA. Then it depends on the private sectors of the two countries to really work together for the Omanis to market Oman and work to get investments from USA and for the American companies to get interested into Oman or Omanis companies to get interested in America. So that is the role of the private sector. The government will certainly help the private sector by doing forums like this and exhibitions and uh, meetings and the embassies. The embassy here will play a big role. And I personally think that there will be an increase in trade, but relative to Europe, I cannot tell you, because Europe, we are talking of many countries, uh, different countries. So, yes, there will be a big increase, I think. I had a question for, for all three of you. Take, take a swing at this. Salah mentioned that over the next period of years, the Arab countries are going to have to create 80 million new jobs. Now, another way of looking at that is you've got 80 million young people in the pipeline, and Arab countries are demographically very young, very high percentage of the population, 25 and under, 18 and, and under. And to me, this is not just an economic challenge, but a, a social challenge in, in the sense that it isn't so much that poverty is an issue in the Arab world as it is uh, economic, a lack of economic dynamism, and this causes frustration among young people. If there are not opportunities to engage in productive economic activity, they're more uh, open to the, uh, uh, the words of uh, uh, religious extremism and, uh, and ultimately potentially uh, terrorism, and that is one of the uh, major motivations on the part of the administration of encouraging more economic freedom uh, in the Middle East. It's a good thing in and of itself. Uh, but also there's a hope that it will create more hope and opportunity for people in that region, in particular young people uh, coming to adulthood. And I just wondered, Minister and, and uh, the rest of you on the panel, how you see this free trade agreement in particular, but economic freedom of the world, uh, economic freedom in general, playing a role in uh, addressing this uh, not only social problem, but uh, in some cases an international issue. I'll talk about Oman and let Salem talk about the Arabs. <laughs> well, as far as Oman is concerned, I mean, we have got two biggest challenges. One is human resources development, and the other is the economic diversification. We rely very heavily on oil. 40% of our GDP is oil, 75% of the government's income is oil and 80% of our exports is oil. So economic diversification is very important. And as you said, we have got a young population, 52% of our population is below 20 years age, so we need jobs for them. How could we do that? To do that, we need foreign investment and economic diversification away from oil. In the next five years, that's our seventh five-year plan, it is to go into gas-based projects which are already committed, around 12 to $15 billion project coming up in Sahar and Sur and Salala in, in, in Oman. And these will create jobs, not only in the mega projects, but they will open doors for downstream projects 
middle and small projects in which there will be many job opportunities. So human resources development should go with it. That's the training of our people. And we are talking to various colleges and universities to open campuses and colleges in Oman to train our people in these projects so that once the projects start, the training also starts. Once the projects start production, there are enough Omanis working in these projects. So these economic diversification and human resources work together, and FTA will actually help because more investments will come, more exports will be there from Oman to United States and other countries, so these will help uh, to find jobs. Thank you. Salim. So I get the easy one. <laughs> I, I think your question, you provided us with a question, and you also provided us with, with an answer uh, to, to your question, so I don't have to say anything. <laughs> but uh, you're, you're right. I think uh, uh, we as Arab always like to point fingers to others for our own problems. Uh, there's no country on earth that has told us to put restrictions of uh, goods and services of people uh, exchanging between Arab countries. Today, if I were to go to many of the Arab countries, I need a visa. My products will be uh, blocked by custom duty. My service will be blocked also by licenses, etc. That is something of our own imposition. Nobody has told us to do that. And um, the Arab world, as a region, has the least intertrade compared to any of the regions. Uh, I think the intertrade is less than eight percent compared to, say, European Union over thirty-five percent. And that is the reason why we have this. There are some other problems um, that we are facing which is a security. Uh, sometimes, due to our own creation, you pick any borders of the two Arab countries, they have gone to war, uh, be it Egypt and Libya, or Qatar and Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain, and uh, Kuwait and Iraq, etc., etc. And that has caused some sort of uh, restriction of movement of people. Now Iraq, uh, with international um, countries or forces, are trying to impose some restrictions of movement of people from Syria, of, or from Iran uh, to, to, to Iraq, which again implies economic freedom or it, uh, takes away a little bit of economic freedom. I think, though, the, the signing of FTAs, where the bilateral with the United States, is a blessing uh, in disguise. Uh, when we completed enough FTAs within the Arab world, probably we can integrate those F, uh, FTAs to form a greater free Arab world then we can start creating wealth, then we can start uh, generating jobs. But until we finish that uh, uh, sort of assignment, or, uh, it, it's, it's too ambitious. And I hope that this issue here in Washington could be looked into a by petition rather than just a, uh, a project promoted by the Republicans only. Thank you. There's no lack of uh, entrepreneurship or drive to create uh, wealth and jobs amongst Arabs. Just look at Arab communities in Canada and the United States uh, where people are free to create wealth and jobs regardless of ethnic background. They are some of the most entrepreneurial, uh, one of the most entrepreneurial communities in our two countries. Uh, economic freedom's ability to produce jobs worldwide uh, is well uh, established. Uh, we do need to do more research specifically in the Arab world and amongst oil states. But Ireland's turnaround from a job, from a, a nation 
with a sh vast shortage of jobs to a nation with a vast shortage of workers uh, is one sign of this. Compare the job creation record of economically free jurisdictions like Ireland, Singapore, the United States, uh, Hong Kong, Great Britain, with the job creation records of less economically free but equally developed countries like Germany uh, or France uh, or Italy. And you see a vast difference there. So I think uh, that there's tremendous hope uh, for job generation in the Arab world because of a native uh, entrepreneurial drive that simply needs uh, to be liberated. Time for uh, one, one more question right there. Please, please wait for the microphone. Francis Johnson of Strategic Planning Initiatives. Welcome to the U.S. Asalim Ismaili. We noticed that in the award ceremony, a women played a visible and active role. Could you tell us in your International Research Foundation the type of roles women play? And then in your Omani society, are they taking part as venture capitalists and managers in corporations or founders of um, small businesses? That question is loaded. Uh, <laughs> am I to understand that uh, your question implies that there is a restriction of women in the Arab world or the Islamic world? Uh, then the answer will be no. The chief executive officer of the International Research Foundation is a woman. Um, and women have always played uh, important roles way back in centuries. Um, I went to school here, and I remember when I went to school, and that's not a long time ago, number of states in the United States, a married woman was not allowed to enter into a commercial contract without the consent of their husbands. While 1,400 years ago, Khadija, the wife of the Prophet, was a leading businesswoman in the Arab world, or in the Islamic world. The first person to become a Muslim was a woman. The first person to become a martyr was a woman. The first person to become a preacher in Islam was a woman. The first person to become a teacher in Islam was a woman. The first person to become a doctor in the Islamic world was a woman, etc., etc., women have played a very important role in our community and as his majesty say that if we discriminate against women any nation who does discriminate against women is only realizing half of the potential of that nation because our population half of it is women we have no problem we've never had problems in fact the only problem i had when i started with uh, ocped is that i didn't have enough women the minister will not allow me to take as many women as i wanted to recruit on ocped <laughs> can, can I, as a, Francis, it's nice to see you. Can I, as an outsider, just, just reinforce what Solomon said? First off, we in the West often forget how recent uh, this thing is, this women's liberation is amongst our own society. I used to work at the Bank of Canada. Do you know up until the 1960s, if a woman working at the Bank of Canada got married, she had to leave the employment uh, of the Bank of Canada? Absolutely 
unthinkable. As someone who spent now a fair amount of time uh, in Oman, I can tell you that you will find women in about the same proportions as in the United States, uh, at the top of government, uh, in businesses, uh, and uh, in the uh, professions. I mean, Oman, for instance, on that regard, would be far ahead of Germany, where you'd find basically men uh, in the office. I think uh, Solon spoke uh, very wisely and directly uh, to that question. It's really quite remarkable when you visit uh, there how wrong the preconceptions can be. Yeah, I just want to add, as far as Oman is concerned, uh, we have got an ambassador here who is a woman. I don't know whether you know that or not. So we have got uh, our Omani ambassador is a woman, and we have got three ministers in our cabinet who are women. And if we count how many women there are in companies and in organizations, there will be per capita. There may be more in, than many Western countries and Western societies. Uh, a few days ago, someone told me that there may be or could be chance of having a first woman in, uh, president in America. And I asked, since the independent, there wasn't any? They said, no. <laughs> well, on that note, I would invite you all to join us upstairs for our complimentary buffet lunch. Please join me in thanking our guests. <laughs>